The GI Research Foundation was able to produce this podcast with a sponsorship from Takeda. Thanks to generous donors such as the GI Research Foundation and others, um, we have been able to make big breakthroughs in the uh, epidemiology, the diagnosis, and the treatment of not just Crohn's disease and ulcerative but other diseases. Hello and welcome to Visceral, a podcast from the GI Research Foundation. I'm Anna Gomberg and I work at the Digestive Diseases Center at the University of Chicago Medicine. With me today are Emily DeBrez, an advanced practice provider, and Russell D. Cohen, Dr. Russell D. Cohen, and Professor of Medicine and Director of the IBD Center. They both specialize in the treating patients with inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And we are here today at our beautiful Hinsdale campus uh, where they see patients. We're here today to discuss the art and science of treating patients with inflammatory bowel disease. As some of our listeners may know, there has been an explosion in medical therapies for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis over the last five years. Dr. Cohen, you have been a leader in this field for over 25 years now? Yeah, pushing 30 pretty soon. Oh my goodness. Uh, Well, we've come to the right place then. Uh, Can you briefly describe, very briefly, uh, I know this is a hard task, but the current landscape of medical therapies for IBD, and maybe tell us a little bit about how your practice has changed with the advent of these new therapies. Sure, Annie. Thank you for having me. You know, uh, the therapies that we used for years were based on chemotherapy drugs, steroids, and antibiotics, or mesalamine, uh, sulfasalazine, which was really used for rheumatoid arthritis. It wasn't until 1998 when the first biological therapy, brand name Remicade and Rifliximab, came through that we had a dramatic change. And since then, most of the other biologics within the first 10 years after that were all in the same family, meaning they work by blocking tumor necrosis factor. Uh, And then around 2014, we had a big breakthrough with another novel approach to treating inflammation in a drug called Antibio. That soon was followed by a drug called Stelara. And more recently, uh, we've had drugs called Zeljans, uh, Rinvoke, and Skyrizi. So each of these uh, newer medicines, or most of them, are from completely different families of each other, meaning they affect inflammation by different pathways. And now the challenge is for us to match the pathway to the patient. Not uh, an easy job, and certainly it seems like there's a lot of art that would go along with that science, as we were, as we said right up top. Um, what, what, how do you do that? How do you decide which therapy is best for which patient? Well, you know, sometimes we have patients who have more than one inflammatory condition. So some of the medicines that I mentioned uh, are ones that you may see commercials for, for other inflammatory conditions, such as rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis or ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis, things like that. So what we do um, is we find out from the patient, you know, do you have any other conditions? And if so, we might match the patient to the therapy. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the therapies I didn't mention, which is uh, one completely different than what we've been using, is also called Zyposia, which is also used for multiple sclerosis. 
So in a way, it's almost easier for us when someone does have more than one condition, because then we automatically will say, well, this is one or two of the possible drugs we'd use. Mm -hmm. um, but not everyone does. Uh, and then there are other characteristics. Emily um, probably is very familiar with some of the decisions that we make when sitting in front of a patient choosing therapies. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely always a joint decision between us as the providers and um, also talking to the patients about what type of um, medication they would prefer to be on or what they think they would be most compliant taking, whether it's a pill or a shot or going in for an infusion. Yeah, sometimes you'd be surprised because the very patient who you think would say, well, I want to take a pill, might turn around and say, I want to get an IV infusion. We're surprised a lot of the times. <laughs> I believe it. Because uh, what do you mean when you say joint decision making? So I think that Dr. Cohen and I, we look at the, um, the drugs that we have in front of us and what would be good options for a patient. But sometimes there's more than one good option. So we try to limit, you know, kind of bring it down to what would be good options for the patient. If there's more than one good option, usually we present them with a few choices and let them know the positives and negatives of each option and try to make that decision together. What do you do when a patient doesn't do well on a medication? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> so the first thing is just getting to the bottom of it. Why are they not doing well on the medication? Is it the actual medication that they're not doing well on? Do they have um, an infection that's complicating the picture? Um, so we kind of look at a bunch of different things of, is this really the IBD that's active that's not responding to therapy, or is there something else going on here? Yeah. Do you have um, any other considerations? Like what is, how does insurance play into what medications you suggest? Well, you know, insurance does play a big role because the medications generally, due to their cost, really need to be approved by the patient's insurance for them to receive it. It's not like they're going to be able to pay for this out of pocket. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of these medicines are tens of thousands of dollars each dose. Mm -hmm. So there are some easy rules. For example, Medicare pays for intravenous medicines and for injections that are administered by a healthcare professional. Outside of that, unless the patient has a Medicare Part D plan, which is um, a drug plan, which I strongly encourage people to do <laughs> if they're on Medicare, it can be quite challenging to get them the medicine, and you may choose a medicine that you know Medicare will cover. Uh, Medicaid, for example, also has preferred, uh, preferred medications, mm -hmm. and we would lean towards those. Mm -hmm. For patients with private insurance, often we don't know off the top of our head what will happen because things, contact, contracting changes perhaps each year, maybe even more so. So often, as Emily mentioned, we'll talk with the patients and do our plan A if your insurance <laughs> approves it, but if not, plan B and plan C and go from there. How long does that process take? Usually for insurances, um, they make a determination within 14 days of mm -hmm. submitting for drug coverage. However, a lot of times we have to appeal that, which takes longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so luckily in the state of Illinois, there are some uh, laws that have recently passed that will require the insurers to um, have electronic submission and quick turnaround either in a urgent case or less urgent case, but that only applies to certain patient insurance types. 
I, I, if the federal government is talking about passing similar legislation, but insurance is actually determined at the state level, the, uh, the, the insurance laws. So um, if patients have federal insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, then ERISA, that'll be covered by the federal laws. Um, and then if they have state insurance, it will be by the state laws. So it is, it is conic, it's very complex and very confusing to many of the doctors that Emily and I uh, train are from other countries, mm. and they're completely befuddled by this uh, mechanism. And it's impossible to understand how patients would be able to get through this. Completely. I mean, we, we see that at the IBD Center all the time with patients that are trying to and unsuccessful at, at initially getting on the medication that they need, and we, we need to support them through those through those challenges. Well, luckily, um, for patients who have private insurance, meaning they're not Medicare or Medicaid or, or military insurance, the most, if not all, of the biotech and pharma companies do have patient assistance plans. Some are needs-based, but some are not. And uh, it's very, very important. And this is just beyond um, inflammatory bowel disease um, for the providers and the patients to you go to the, the name of the drug.com website and they will list there the plans. The patients have to sign up for them. They're free plans. And uh, it's extremely important to do this because they don't just provide um, assistance for medication. Emily is very aware of some of the other things that these assistance plans provide. Right. So a lot of them um, provide information about the medication that you're going to be taking. They provide nursing services so that if you have a question regarding your medication that you can call them at any day of the week and ask your question and someone gets back to you right away. A lot of these programs also offer injection training, which is very valuable, especially if you don't live close to your doctor's office. Like we see a lot of patients that are in different states. Wait, us. what's injection training? What does that mean? That sounds pretty. That sounds pretty serious. <laughs> what does that involve? Yeah. So um, some of the medications we have are delivered via um, what we call um, a self-injectable. So it's an injection um, that you give yourself. Um, and so obviously that's pretty scary for a lot of our patients, especially the first time that they are doing this. So, you know, in our practice, a lot of times I have these patients come in so that I can walk beside them to teach them how to do it. But, um, you know, it's, it's really great that these, um, farmer programs also have, um, assistance to, to train, um, the patients on how to give themselves these injections. And make them comfortable doing it. Absolutely. It's, I mean, a big step from not, from, uh, for many patients, I would assume that would be the first time they had ever given themselves either an auto-injectable or a syringe and, and used that. That would, I would imagine, be a big barrier for some patients. And you mentioned that some patients prefer to have an inject, do an injection. Some prefer to take a pill. Some prefer to get an infusion. What does that, like, do, do they elucidate why those preferences are important to them and how do you how do you suss that out well so often what happens if we say well here are your options well let's mm -hmm. say for argument's sake the patients didn't have another inflammatory condition so mm -hmm. kind of the sky's the limit for for and we say we you know, take a pill once a day a shot every two weeks an IV and um, often the patients will say for example I travel a lot for my job so I can't be um, uh, I can't have to rely on getting intravenous. I need to do a medicine that I can give myself. 
Mm. Um, or patients might say, I will absolutely not give myself a shot. I'm needle phobic, which sometimes can lead off also to the IV drug issue problem, but then I just tell them to wear a blindfold. But, um, <laughs> uh, or the, you would think people just want a pill a day and they say, I can't, I won't be able to remember to take a pill a day. They're like, I, I don't trust myself. Oh my God, that, that's me. There you go. <laughs> I, I would absolutely be the person who couldn't remember to take a pill. I'm the day. same, actually. Yeah, I would. I could see if we could get it on a schedule, that would be so much better. See, I'm different. I take my pill you every are. day. Well, that's why you're a doctor. <laughs> that's right. Right. Exactly. You have to have. You have to have a routine that you follow. I mean, you don't follow it. Yeah, I have a lot, I have a lot less confidence in you if you said, you know, I don't know how I could possibly remember to take a pill every day. That's that's for us. That's not for our super our super docs. Um, so that so all of that is really part of that conversation that you have with those patients in clinic after you figure out what medication might be the best option for them. Well, sure. Like you know, you had asked Emily before about you know the idea about you know this is shared decision making. Yeah. Okay? And and this is the point. Okay, it is we are with you. We are with the patient. We're going through this journey with you. Mm-hmm. So let's do this together. Mm-hmm. This is what's going on. Here are the here are the directions that we think you should take, and here's why. And we really want them to be participant in it. We don't want to be talking at patients. We want to be talking with patients. And it's exactly. very important um, to do that, especially for people who have chronic relapsing conditions. Mm-hmm. This isn't a one and done, uh, unless you're very bad, then it is a one and done. But this isn't a one and done. So are all of these patients that are beginning these new medical therapies, are they going to be on those for the rest of their lives? Or is this something that changes over time? Unfortunately, with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, we haven't found a cure yet. So the medications that we keep patients on are um, made to keep patients in remission. Um, And to do that, we have to keep patients on therapy. And a lot of patients are concerned that, oh, I'm going to be on this therapy forever. Well, you know, there's forever is a long time. So we never say forever and things change um, based on how their disease progresses, um, based on side effects. But if it's working for a patient, for the most part, we want them to stay on their therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think it's important to realize that thanks to generous donors such as the GI Research Foundation and others, um, we have been able to make big breakthroughs in the um, epidemiology, the diagnosis, and the treatment of not just Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, but other diseases. So we are very, very optimistic that we will have a day when patients will not need to be on medicines, or perhaps maybe not all patients will be needed to be on medicines, but we're not there yet. So um, I say to the patients, you know, we see you a few times a year, sooner, uh, more frequently if you need to be, but we'll reassess each year and see because things do come out, Mm -hmm. things do change. A lot of the newer therapies um, are safer than the older therapies. The older therapies are chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So transitioning patients from less safe to safer medicines, Mm -hmm. that's a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And as we move forward, yeah, as we move forward, we will um, likely have situations where we'll know who you can stop therapy on and who you can't. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet. Um, you mentioned safety. How are these new medications, which are you know brand new, how are they safer than the old ones? So the older medicines that we used, for, first of all, corticosteroids, prednisone, um, while it works well short-term, is not a long-term plan, and it has a laundry list of side effects that are really unacceptable. 
many of the other older medicines that I mentioned, we actually borrowed from oncologists. They're used for treating leukemia. There are, uh, and while we are very confident in these medicines un- in our hands, there still are medicines that affect the bone marrow and how you make other cells, and they do have cancer risks. The newer therapies, particularly the, the biologics, which is anything given IV or shot as a biologic, are essentially harmless unless you're allergic to them. There are some rare risks of infection with some of them, but for the most part, um, they're Very fine. Safe. You get, We let women get pregnant on them. We uh, use them in children who need them for their therapies. We let women nurse on them. That's how safe the, the majority of patients uh, experience the biologics, uh, and that is leaps and bounds above the older medicines. That's great. And, like, are there... I would assume that the risks of not getting treatment are far worse than the risks than any side effect that might be associated with these medications for the most part, for most patients. Is that accurate? Definitely accurate. Um, Especially we see that patients that are in a hyperinflammatory state are often more likely to have blood clots and things like that happen as well. Um, We see in Crohn's disease, if we don't manage inflammation, that people can get stricturing disease, which can cause bowel obstructions and emergency surgery. Um, So being on therapy is definitely safer for our patients, especially as Dr. Cohen mentioned of how safe our therapies really are these days. You know, the analogy is, 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 why do you change oil in your car? Mm-hmm. Why don't you just wait for the engine to seize up? It's so much easier. This sounds like treat- a question my husband asked me. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the car commercials used to have a thing that says, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. So the point is that when people are not very sick or just to keep them well, it's so much easier. And, and the medicines work better. They are often one medicine, not a whole bunch of medicines. They're safer medicines. Then later on, when all of a sudden it's it's a fire alarm and uh, you have to drop everything and you have to do things. And, you know, sometimes people may not be in the location where there's the best medical care or the most advanced things. Or they, if they do need surgery, which is a big part of treating some patients with IBD, um, they're going to get the surgeon who's on the night call rather than the surgeon they want with the, with the staff that they want doing the procedure that they want mm-hmm. too. So while uh, certain things are scary about being sick and facing surgery, it's better to do it along with your team of specialists, medical and surgical specialists. That way, if you do need advanced therapies or surgery, mm-hmm. um, it can be done when it should be done rather than an emergency. What about patients that want to try something along with their therapy, like what they think that maybe uh, they've, they've been doing yoga and that really helps with their IBD symptoms, or they've tried to, you know, they've, they've developed a diet that seems to work with them. How do you work with them, Emily, on incorporating some of those complementary practices into their treatment? Is that something that you encourage, something that you try to dissuade them from doing or what do you do when patients personally come you I think yoga is always a good a good idea um so I think that especially with inflammatory bowel disease a lot of our patients find that stress is a trigger for them mm-hmm. so you you spoke about yoga before a lot of patients find that if they can implement things into their daily life that reduces their anxiety and their stress that they also find that it's easier to keep their IBD in remission. Um, so I encourage those things and we try to treat a patient as a whole and um, look at them holistically. 
Um, so I think that those types of things are great. Um, if a patient has a diet that works better for them or that they feel better on, like a lot of our patients say, if I have dairy, I feel terrible. Or a lot of our patients do have structuring disease. So eating a high fiber diet really is not a good idea for them. Um, so those things we can work through. Um, you know, at this point, being on a diet and wanting to call that your only therapy for your Crohn's or ulcerative colitis doesn't usually work well, but um, as, as a complement um, to therapy, I, I'm totally okay with that. How do you keep patients taking that pill every day or that shot every two weeks? How, I mean, that must come down to you, Emily, in your clinic, in your... Uh, you know, do, I've you, had a few patients, patients in the last few weeks tell, <laughs> tell me that I sound a lot like their mother. <laughs> believe that. Usually they're about 18-year-old boys <laughs> with their mom sitting right next to them. Um, I try to talk to them about thinking forward. So thinking forward about how we're going to remember it. Because remembering to take a pill is hard. Remembering to take an injection every eight weeks is hard. So you got to plan ahead. And I try to tell my patients this, especially my younger patients, that you need to get out your phone. You need to set a reminder in your phone, um, you know, at the time of this injection for your next injection so that this doesn't fall through the cracks. Um, and then with our younger patients, it's really trying to give them the power to take control of their own disease and the management of their disease because they're so used to having their parents do this for them. And then they come to our adult practice and we totally flip the switch on them and say, you know, this is your body, your health, you are an adult now, and we we need to make baby steps to get you there that you can take responsibility for these things on your own. I'm sure part of that might involve talking to those parents and helping them step yes. back. As a parent myself, I can't, I mean, picturing my you know child going off to college. And do, do parents play a role in that also? They do, and a lot of them are hesitant to take a step back. And I, and I kind of tell them, this doesn't have to be a stripping the bandaid off process where we expect this to happen overnight. Um, usually I say, you know, here are our goals for this visit. By next visit, I want Michael to remember to take his medication on his own and to set the alarm on his phone. The -hmm. next visit, maybe we talk about, I want Michael to send me the MyTurn messages himself instead of mom sending them. So it's definitely a process. Uh, What advice do the two of you have for patients living with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis that are not yet in remission, that are still living with symptoms every day, that are still feeling terrible? What would you tell them? Well, the first thing is let your provider know. I mean, I really, I challenge myself. I want to make everybody perfect. And I say to the patients, I don't just say, are you feeling better? I say, are you perfect? Because I want to be perfect. And feeling better, you know, you can go from going to the bathroom 20 times a day to 10 times a day and say, you're better. Like, yeah, yeah, you're a great doctor. But no, I'm not. You're still going to the bathroom 10 times a day. Now, it may not be able to fix everything, Mm -hmm. but certainly let let your healthcare team know um, and if it turns out that you aren't able to take the medicine either because you don't want to give yourself shots, you can't let them know. Let them know we're, we're on your side, okay? We're part of your team. We're not, we're not the opposition. We're part of your team. Our goal is you. Our goal is to get you to perfection or as close to it as perfect. And don't forget, sometimes patients need surgery. Sur- I'm not a surgeon. Surgery is not a bad thing. If you need surgery, you want surgery. That's great advice. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. Just to kind of reiterate what Dr. Cohen said, I think that communication is key. We can't fix something we don't know about. So talking to your provider is, 
you know the number one step at getting yourself in the right direction and and not being afraid to make a change i see a lot of our patients kind of drag their feet at um switching therapies because they're worried about side effects and the reality is is that most of the medications that we use these days are very very safe and have great safety profiles and um i try to help our patients understand this by telling them you know i would not lose sleep if any of my family members were on any of the medications that we use for ulcerative colitis and crohn's that's wonderful that's great to hear and as a parent as a sister as a daughter and all of these things, uh, it, it, that is the most important question. I think you always are wondering, how will this affect my loved ones? Thank you both so much for taking this time. Is there anything um, in the future that you are excited about with regard to the treatment of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis? Is there anything coming, coming soon that we should be looking for or that we anticipate will be the next frontier in research treatment for these really important conditions? Well, sure. You know, on the medical side, there's personalized medicine where we're going to hopefully be able to know soon. I listed a whole bunch of different families of medicines that if you need medicine, what's the best approach for you? What's the one that's going to work the best and give that to you first rather than fifth? Just because you have to do trial and error to that. On the surgical side, they're actually the surgeons are always innovating in ways to be have better outcomes with surgery and uh, to prevent Crohn's from coming back, patients with ulcerative colitis. Um, they've uh, done really to perfected surgery for many years and even more advances on, on giving them normal lives as well, too. Uh, and there actually are some very interesting studies looking at why do people get Crohn's and colitis? And maybe there is a way that we can adjust something in their lives so they don't get it at all. Wow. So that's the prevention is, the be- is, is better than treatment angle maybe well you know it's not really they're not really felt to be infectious diseases and you remember you need your immune system your immune system is supposed to protect you from infections the problem is just that the immune system is 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 misbehaving Mm. it's acting as if you you have an infection and trying to get rid of it and it's trying to protect you so we just have to figure out how to get the immune system back not to recognizing you you as the enemy sounds wonderful Um, Thank you both so much for your time. This is wonderful. Um, I will look forward to talking to you more and hearing more about these advances as they come to fruition. Great. Thank you so much, Annie. And for the Gastrointestinal Research Foundation, really appreciate them funding this very important initiative. Yep. Thanks for having us, Annie. Thank you for listening to the podcast Visceral from the GI Research Foundation. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Anna Gombert, and mixed by the incredible Mike Collins Dowd, who also composed our theme music. We hope you'll join us next time and rate, like, or subscribe wherever you find your podcast. Until then, visit the GI Research Foundation at gurf.org, that's G-I-R-F.org, to learn more about how to support the research that treats, cures, and prevents digestive diseases.